You're listening to Stop Yelling, Start Thinking. This podcast is not here to tell you what you have to think, but to encourage you to think for yourself. Just like you, what we want is a healthier country. Healthier politics. Healthier dialogue. And healthier lives. So join us as we think together. Welcome to the Stop Yelling, Start Thinking podcast. I'm Magdalene Rose, joined by my co-host Alexander Sizemore and Isaiah Smith. Tonight, our guest is Spike Cohen, who's the VP nominee for the Libertarian ticket. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Magdalene. Thank you for having me on, and I I look forward to doing this. Well, we're going to hand it off to Isaiah to do the first question set. Because this is the Stop Yelling, Start Thinking podcast, we're going to be each talking to Spike individually so we don't have any overlap. So without further ado, go ahead, Isaiah. Well, good day, Spike. Um, my name's Isara and I'm from New Zealand. It's uh, great to have you here today. And um, I've got a couple of different questions for you. And uh, most of them are based around the idea of what is the Libertarian Party and what do you guys stand for? Sure, um, so kind of getting a bit more of an idea about that. And uh, so the first, first question I've got for you really is, what does it mean to be a Libertarian? So Libertarianism means to me, and I mean, there have been countless hours and days and weeks that have been devoted to people talking about this uh, on end. But in a nutshell, libertarianism is the belief that we own ourselves uh, and have autonomy over ourselves and our lives and our bodies. And because of that, that means we also own our labor. uh, And because of that, it also means that we own our property, which is the product of our labor. And we believe that whenever anyone tries to hurt someone or take their property, or tell them what to do, or order them around, or subjugate them, that it is an act of aggression. We believe that aggression is wrong, not just from a moral standpoint, that you shouldn't harm people, you shouldn't try to take their things, you shouldn't try to boss people around and tell them what to do, but it also doesn't work from a utilitarian standpoint. If I can take from you, Isaiah, and everyone else uh, in this panel, and everyone else who's, who's watching and listening to this, whenever I see fit, I'm not going to be a good steward of what I have. I'm not going to make good choices because I don't have to. I can just take more from you whenever I want to. And you are not necessarily going to be the best stewards of what you have because, you know, I can come and take it from you at any time. So you might as well use it while you've got it. And if we look at all of the harmful and abusive and inequitable outcomes that come from bad, centrally planned and arbitrarily defined and crony-friendly policies that come from big government politicians and cronies and bureaucrats, we see a system whereby government presumes the authority to take from us and order us around and aggress upon us as they see fit. We shouldn't be surprised that we get the bad outcomes from that. Libertarians believe in dismantling these policies and giving the power that has been taken the power and the freedom and the money that has been taken from the people, giving it back to them and allowing them to, in their own terms and with people that they are voluntarily working with, come up with the solutions to their problems and removing the barriers and burdens that are coming from centrally planned policies that make their lives harder. Remove those those burdens so they have fewer problems to deal with in the first place and give them their power and their money back so that they can seek the solutions they want to the problems that they face. Cool. So kind of like, um, you know, take, take the barriers away from people that are there to stop them being able to make their own decisions and then have responsibility for, for what the, for the decisions that they're making and stuff, you know, take some personal responsibility for that. With their power and their money and their freedom back. Because it's one thing to tell someone to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but if you've taken their bootstraps and the bootstrap Mm. fee is $50,000 and the bootstrap license fee is $100,000, now all of a sudden (laughs) an increasing number of people can't do the bootstrap pulling. So the the, the answer isn't to, you know, remove safety nets. The answer is to put the ladders back so that they can climb out of the nets and and thrive and prosper in ways that often aren't possible to them right now. Mm. 
Fantastic. Thank you for that. Um, my next question for you is um, what are the major issues you as a candidate stand for and what specific politi- uh, policies or beliefs are you passionate about? So this is an interesting one when I'm asked, you know, what are your top issues? Because I tend to look at things in a holistic way. So it's hard for me to isolate something like, for example, healthcare or the pandemic or police brutality or the wars or any of these things into single issues, because in my mind, they're all one issue. Um, but here's what I can do. I can tell you what our top priorities are from, from a, a standpoint of what we're campaigning for. Uh, and those things are making healthcare more affordable by getting government bureaucracy out of the way, which will reduce the cost at least 75% or more and allow uh, a more greater access to affordable healthcare for Americans and also make uh, programs that provide healthcare to Americans, to the elderly and to the poor, more affordable and sustainable. Uh, another one is to end the wars overseas, the failed uh, imperial wars overseas, bring those troops home and allow the healing to begin from there. Also dismantling the Veterans Administration and just giving the money directly to veterans so they can get the health care that they need, which not only will let them have better health care outcomes without having to spend years proving that they have disability and need it, uh, but also it will save taxpayers, including veteran taxpayers, billions of dollars a year. Uh, and then another, probably the other two major priorities are uh, ending the uh, militarized and increasingly unaccountable uh, police state by ending the war on drugs, ending qualified immunity, ending civil asset forfeiture, ending mandatory minimum sentencing, and ending a host of the other policies that are leading to increasingly bad outcomes for Americans, increasingly the most, mar- including uh, uh, especially the most marginalized among us. Uh, and then uh, I would say the last one is the environment. Uh, get the government out of environmental issues and allow Americans to sue polluters when they pollute instead of protecting these industries against indemnifying them against lawsuits, which allows them to pollute, get a slap on the wrist, and then externalize the cost of their pollution to the taxpayers that they just victimized. Instead, let us sue them out of business when they do that, which will be an incredible deterrent to them polluting in the first place and will lead to them being able to uh, innovate and come up with ways not to pollute uh, without needing those uh, small business killing regulations in the first place. Fantastic. My next question for you is, um, it's kind of switches gears a little bit here, um, kind of more towards uh, the people that, uh, that you kind of, uh, see on the campaign trail and that. So what are the typical characteristics of a libertarian voter? What we're seeing, uh, there isn't really a, a identity characteristic as much as a, a commonality in the fact that they recognize, libertarian voters recognize that the source of their problem is that there are powerful people who are trying to impose themselves on all of us and take from us and tell us what to do. And that in the best of conditions, if a well-intentioned person gets into that, into that position of telling us what to do and taking from us to pay for it, we're still going to have bad outcomes because that person, as smart as they may be, as well-intentioned as they may be, there is no way that they can figure out how 330 million Americans should be able to live their lives. Of course, we've seen that we don't get the best of people for those roles. Those types of roles are sought out by sociopaths who want to rob us and tell us what to do so that they can benefit from us. So they become wealthy. The well-heeled, politically connected billionaire cronies who bought and paid for them to be in office become wealthy. And we all directly uh, suffer as a result of it. What I have seen, people of all different colors, all different races, creeds, uh, religious affiliations, all different income levels, 
uh, although I would say that the average libertarian tends to be uh, the working class and the working poor, which is the total rebuttal of the stereotype of us that we're just a bunch of rich people who don't care about the poor. I'd say most libertarians are actually poor. Um, but the uh, what I've seen over and over again, whether I've seen libertarians at my bus stop uh, tours, bus tour stops, or my fly ahead tour stops, uh, whether I've seen libertarians at lockdown protests, whether I've seen libertarians at Black Lives Matter and police accountability protests, the common theme is that they recognize that these bad uh, outcomes that they are getting and that the harm that they are suffering is a direct result of people trying to impose themselves on us. And we want our freedom back. We want our money back. We want our property back. We want our power back. We want to be able to thrive and prosper working together instead of having it imposed upon us. Thank you for that. Uh, my next question for you is what makes a libertarian voter different from a Republican or Democrat voter? So I don't know that there's a big difference in them as a person. I think that a libertarian voter uh, has either just become fed up with the two parties constantly promising them things mm -hmm. that they want and never actually delivering and only just giving them continuously worse outcomes. They are sick of voting for lesser evils and just getting more and more evil slowly over time uh, in a cumulative way. Uh, or they never bought it in the first place. We get a lot of libertarian voters who either have always voted libertarian or third party, or they just didn't vote for a long time. And the reason they didn't vote was because they understood that the Republicrats had nothing good for them. The Republicrats just wanted to make their lives worse and harder and more difficult uh, and make them you know, pay the bill for it. Um, so it's not really that they're different as people. It's just that they I think they see the pattern and they recognize that the answer to the problems we're facing is not Joe Biden. And it sure as hell isn't Donald Trump. The answer is getting rid of Republicrats and replacing them with people who don't want to control them and want to actually dismantle these policies and give them their power back. All right. My fi final question for you um, would be, what is your, uh, your and Joe's core platform this election cycle? So our core platform is kind of what I just went over before that, you know, mm -hmm. we're going to end, uh, uh, end police brutality by holding police accountable and by ending the militarization that's happening, basically by getting the federal government out of policing. It never should have been there. And all it has done is made things worse. Policing should be a community based decision. And those communities can decide what they want their policing to look like. That's the best way to do that. Uh, same thing with healthcare: getting the federal government out of healthcare, letting the costs go down, and the access to affordable care to increase. Uh, getting the federal government out of uh, out of environmental issues, so that small businesses aren't crushed with these burdens, uh, with these regulatory burdens, and large polluters aren't protected uh, from the people uh, suing them for the damage that they cause. Uh, and then finally, ending the wars overseas and bringing the troops home. And I mean, we have a policy on every single issue, whether it's Social Security, taxes, ending the IRS, ending the ATF, uh, ending the DEA, all of these things. We have policies on all of them, but I would say those are our core ones. Mm. All right. Thank you for that, Spike. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you. I'll hand it over to uh, Alexander. Cool. Howdy, Spike. Uh, as Isaiah said, my name is Alexander. And I just wanted to thank you again for coming on and talking with us. Uh, we definitely appreciate it. Hey, thank um, you. I appreciate it, Alexander. Yeah, I wanted to take a slightly different approach with some questions and focus things in a little bit more towards kind of the younger generation. Because, okay. um, you know, obviously the youth of, of America, the well, millennials aren't so much youth anymore. I know, I was going to say, I, I'm an old millennial and I'm middle-aged, so it's, it's more Gen Z now. But yeah, millennials and Gen Z. But we're the upcoming, right? And we're ultimately, there's a lot of, at least in my circles, there's a lot of uh, older people that are politically interested. Um, but the young people are the future. And if we want to see lasting change throughout America, it can't just be, it has to start from the youth. Um, at least Absolutely. I believe so. Yeah. Um, but 
to start on that, what are some of the primary issues that you see with the American political system? And this isn't just from policy. This could be, this is the climate, how people interact with each other. So the biggest thing I see right now is that we live in a narrative of theater and that theater has to exist in order for the Republicrats to regain control. Here's what I mean by that. If we were not at each other's throats and constantly fighting each other, we would be able to take a step back and realize that Republicrats are Republicrats, that it doesn't matter whether you vote Republican or Democrat. The rhetoric is different, but the policies are the same. You get more taxes, you yeah. get more debt, you get more government, you get more impositions on your life, you get more harmful, abusive, and inequitable outcomes as a direct result of that, you get more suffering, and they just keep getting richer, and they get more and more powerful. In order to obfuscate from that, and to force us to not have an opportunity to step back and say, they're all in on it, this whole thing is fixed, they have to keep us at each other's throats. And here's how they do that. They don't say if you're not voting Democrat, you're voting Republican, or if you're not voting Republican, you're voting Democrat. They say if you're not voting Democrat, you're voting for a Nazi. And then they say, and if you're not voting Republican, you're voting for a America-hating communist. But here's the reality. It doesn't matter which one you vote for. You really shouldn't be voting for either. Because if you vote for a Republican, you get a Republicrat. You get more and more of the same. And in order to, to, uh, to uh, you know, distract from that, they keep everyone at each other's throats. They have everyone fighting over the last thing that Donald Trump tweeted or whether or not Joe Biden could even pass a cognitive test. Heck, by the way, he couldn't. Uh, but, you know, they, they constantly <laughs> have him fighting over these stupid things that really don't matter or issues that really do matter, like, uh, for example, police brutality or, uh, or, or, you know, the protests and the riots. But instead of looking at it as why it's happening, they have to blame Republicans. They have to blame Democrats. And the reason they do that is because if you're busy blaming one side and holding up the other one as the solution and, and, and fighting with your friends and your loved ones and your family members and colleagues on, on visceral terms and secretly hating each other because they are voting for the other side, that they're voting for evil while I'm voting for good. If we stop doing that, we'd realize that they're all evil and that it's not us versus each other. It's not left versus right. It's not Republican versus Democrat voter or conservative versus liberal. It is the American people. And frankly, I mean, we have people here who, who uh, presumably uh, are not from America. It's the people against a relative handful of incredibly powerful people who use theater to keep us at each other's throats while they rob us in every aspect of our life, large and small, every single day for their profit at our direct expense. That is what has led to the political discourse in this country. And it is why an increasing number of people just opt out. It is why when we are at the Thanksgiving yeah. table or we're just sitting, you know, out and about or we're on a Zoom call because no one gets together anymore, when we're doing these things, and it gets into politics, an increasing number of people just shrug their shoulders and walk away because they recognize the whole thing's a joke and a mess and it's never going to get any better unless we stop voting Republicrat, unless we stop voting for the people who are working to actually make things harder for us and instead start voting for people who will dismantle those things, give us the power back so we can find our own solutions to things. Yeah, that's actually, it's a great analogy. I really like the term, how you described it. The, it's theater. Uh, it's a charade. Yeah, it is. It's a theater um, of the absurd, but it has people literally fighting in the streets right now. And it's, it, people are suffering and dying as a direct result of it. Yeah. Now, what, what role do you think that the American youth play in perpetuating these issues? I mean, obviously, continuing to vote for people that suppress you is going to perpetuate the cycle. But are there ways in which behavioral traits that ways in which we can not contribute 
Well, I mean, the easy answer to the, 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 the quick answer, and I rarely give quick answers, is to vote for people who aren't going to perpetuate these systems. But here's the problem with that, Alexander. When I talk to young people, and I've done uh, tours in, um, uh, in, in college campuses, both in person uh, and, off, and online, uh, going to Zoom chats with uh, different universities across the country, here's what I hear over and over again. I have no idea how I'm going to pay off my student loans or pay for my higher education. I don't even know if I'll be able to find a job uh, in the field of study, a uh, field of work that I want to get into. I don't know how I'm going to be able to afford the cost of living. There's no way I'm ever going to be able to afford to buy a house. I don't even know if I'm going to be able to afford to rent a house, even with roommates. And when I talk to my parents and my grandparents and other people who are older than me, they tell me that it's my fault, that back when they were my age, they could just work their way through college and they could buy a house a few years later and they could buy a car, you know, while they're still in college. Of course they could, yeah. because the cost of living was a lot less and the cost of those things was much less and the wages weren't much lower than they are now. So they are hopeless. I am talking to people in their early 20s when they should be the most hopeful and excited about their lives. And they sound like nihilists. They are living with existential dread in their late teens and early 20s because they are facing the harsh, predictable outcomes of these bad policies. And so they, are so they have two groups of people talking to them largely. They have the group saying, oh, you're lazy. You need to stop eating so many avocados. You need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like <laughs> I did. This is the most entitled lazy generation I've ever seen. What a bunch of losers. Okay. They have that group, the Republicans. And then they have the other group that says, this isn't your fault. These things were done to you. You were robbed by powerful people. We've got an answer. We're going to rob them back with taxes and give you all the things that you need in order to be able to survive. Now, if you are hopeless, you have nothing, you have no idea how your life's going to work, and those are the two options you're given, which one are you going to go with? Yeah. And so they go, and by the way, that's part of the theater. The Republicans don't want their vote. They just want them to vote Democrat, just like the Democrats don't want the vote of angsty white people. They want them to vote Republican. They want those people to hate them and vote for the other side because it's all the same side. It's part of the theater. So here's how that theater works out. You have people whose problems, in this case, young people, whose problems are that they cannot afford their life, already realize that in their late teens and early 20s, and are voting for the very politicians, parties, and policies that helped make that happen, and are voting for policies that will make it worse, because that's the only option they're being given. And so what it is incumbent upon us as people that are running to dismantle those things are talk to the people who are the most acutely affected by these policies, the youth, the poor, people of color and other marginalized communities, the groups who are the most acutely affected because they already know the system isn't working for them. And I don't have to convince them of it. All I have to do is show them the natural consequence of the policies that are being proposed and the natural consequence of dismantling them and giving the power back to them. So the short answer to your question is they could vote differently. The longer answer is that in order for them to vote differently, they have to have people who are meeting them where they are, and not just the young, this is any group, meeting them where they are, talking to them without preconditions, validating their concerns, empathizing with them and demonstrating them to them that we understand and care, and then taking them on the journey to how more human liberty will solve those problems. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's a reason why it's not, it's somewhat tongue in cheek, but there's a reason why that sometimes we're called the doomer generation. Yes. Um, the, the outlook is that grim for many people. It is terrible. And I mean, you highlighted it exactly that on the one hand, you have people that are giving you some form of hope, yep. right? They, or at least they, 
they claim to understand and they want to help. And then the other side comes off as being entirely calloused and uncaring. Intentionally. And it just drives them straight. And that is an intentional theater. A similar way that it works the other way. So you have people that are concerned with the chaos that is going on in the streets right now and the rioting and the looting and the pillaging, okay? And you have one group saying, well, you're just a racist who doesn't care about black people's lives. Well, that's not true. I'm just worried about my house being burned down. Nope, you're a racist and everyone hates you. And then you have another party going, look at those people. They say that you're a racist because you don't want your house and everything you work for to be burned down. We'll fix that. We need even stronger police with less accountability. We need even more military equipment in our streets. Vote for us. We'll keep you safe. That is an example of how one group intentionally does not empathize and demonizes a group so that the other one can swoop in as the good cop and say, hey, we got a solution for you. It's going to suck and it's going to make things worse, but we've got a solution. And more importantly, we've demonstrated that you, we care about you because no one cares what you know until they know that you care. So this is very simple stuff, but it's done intentionally. Democrats don't want that demographic voting for them. They want the other demographic voting for them because they have to have a certain number of people voting Republican and hating them, just like they need a certain number of people voting for them and hating Republicans so they can keep the theater going. It's all intentional and it's happening in front of and them. Then, and we end up being pawns in the whole deal. We so are all pawns in the whole It deal. might be yep. a theater, but so many people get swept away in the charade and end oh. up playing just as big of a role in perpetuating it. Absolutely. To be clear, the theater is the narrative, but it's actually happening. People are actually suffering yeah. and actually dying and actually suffering real harm, not just in fighting in the streets, but in just the bad outcomes of these policies. So, it, so the theater is between the politicians pretending they hate each other, but us fighting each other, us suffering, us not being able to afford the things that we need to be able to survive and, and thrive and prosper, those, that's all absolutely real. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know how much you know about us and what we do, but at Stop Yelling, Start Thinking, we're really, you know, we're politically interested youth, if you want to call us that younger generation. We're, <laughs> we're really, our mission is to reach um, <laughs> the other younger politically interested teens in Amer and uh, young adults in America. Good, good, good. Um, but do you have any advice for us, uh, not just on how we can vote differently and how we can be mindful and not play into the farce? Um, but on how we can be better messengers for liberty-centric ideals, how we can engage in better, more productive conversations, not just conservative slash Republican to right, right, right. liberal or Democrat. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you're already doing a lot of this. So I may be telling you, I may be about to tell you a bunch of things that you're already doing, but I'll, I'll say, this is what I say when people say, how can I message liberty? I am a right libertarian. I'm an anarcho-capitalist. And people often think that I'm a left winger because of the amount of support that I get from people on the left, the number of people that I'm bringing in from the left into libertarianism. No, I'm actually a very hardcore capitalist. I'm very open about it to anyone I speak with. The reason that I'm getting them is because I'm empathizing with them and no one else is. The only group who is empathizing with them, with them right now are the ones who also just nominated one of the architects of the militarized police state and who he picked as his running mate, one of its most brutal enforcers, Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris. And so they, that's a perfect opportunity because they, they see the writing on the wall for them. But the reality is the only reason I'm bringing them in is because I'm empathizing with them. So my advice to you and to anyone else who's listening to this and wants to bring people in to the liberty message uh, or really to bring people into anything. I mean, th this is what I ultimately learned this in business. Uh, I, I owned a, a company for the better part of 20 years, uh, grew it into a successful enough company that allowed me to retire three years ago so I could focus full time on liberty activism. Here is what I've learned in terms of how to make friends and influence people and, and bring people to your side. Meet them where they are. Empathize with them. 
validate their concerns, if not their, if not their, their outcomes of their, their preferences of, of, of what they think should be done, validate their concerns. Because when someone comes to you and says, for example, I think healthcare is a right, it's way too expensive, people shouldn't have to lose everything to get healthcare, we need government healthcare insurance, or we need government run healthcare, or we need government paid single payer healthcare. They're not saying I'm an ideological socialist and I want to destroy the free market. And, and, and I, I have a skewed concept of human rights. What they're saying is I am scared for myself and others. That is a valid concern. Our healthcare system is a mess that costs a fortune and unnecessarily so. And we validate people's concerns, whether it's about healthcare, police brutality, whether it's about chaos, whether it's about even immigration, whether it's about wars, whether it's about the war on drugs, addiction, abuse, uh, overdoses, whether it's about spousal abuse, whatever their issues are, are, are about. You validate their concerns, you empathize with them, you demonstrate that you care about what they're saying. From there, once you have shown that you care about what they're dealing with, then you can take them on the journey to how our policies will fix those problems. Presumably, if you're liberty-leaning, you probably are able to explain how it works because that's an interesting thing about libertarians is that almost to, the, to, to a one, we are able to explain how liberty works. We often put that front and forward when we haven't yet demonstrated, and this is true of people in general, when we haven't demonstrated first that we even care about the person we're talking to. So that's the most important thing. Empathize with people, meet, with it, meet them where they are, listen to them. That's a very powerful thing that often gets forgotten. When you listen to someone and hear what they have to say, two things are happening there. Number one, you are identifying what their concerns are so that you know how to message to them. And number two, they're getting a great catharsis that people often pay a hundred bucks an hour for at someone is actually listening to what their concerns are. You don't have to do it for an hour, but you're, they're, they're actually getting a powerful catharsis and someone listening to them and they're already developing ties with you. They're already thinking, wow, this person actually cares what I think about things. So two great things happen there. You learn about the person and they think they realize that you care about them. So these are the things you do. Meet people where they are, empathize with them, validate their concerns, take them on the journey. Yeah. And that's excellent advice. Thank you, Spike. Thank um, you, so now I think Magdalene's got a, has got a few more questions for you before we uh, call it quits for today. Sure. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on, Spike. I'm Magdalene, and I'm going to be focusing a little more on the policy standpoint now. Sure. So first of all, one of the things that's been in the media right now is Trump withdrawing troops. There's a huge debate going on. And I've wondered from a libertarian perspective, how will the libertarian administration maintain global influence and global power if you don't have a military presence in countries like South Korea and Germany, where we've had such a presence over the years? Right. So uh, we don't have global power. Very, very powerful people who rob you every day and send your loved ones to fight and kill and die have power. It does not benefit us. It makes us less safe. It makes us less prosperous. It makes our lives harder and unnecessarily so. It makes people around the world hate us. Us, not the, they hate those people too, but then they also hate us. It makes things worse for Americans every single day. It also has led to a massive multi-trillion dollar debt. Other policies have as well, but it has been a major contributor. The, the endless wars overseas have been a massive, unmitigated failure for the people. Although I shouldn't say a failure because they are, they are running as intended. They expected it to cost us and make us desperate and they expected it to enrich them and make them powerful. Here is also what has happened. We have countries overseas who can more than afford to pay for their defense and they don't have to because that cost is externalized to you and me, the American taxpayer. Right. 
So they get to have lashes, lavish social safety nets, and they get to look their nose down at the American people and go, look at those foolish Americans not having the safety nets we have. Well, no, because we're paying for their defense. And it also leads to this sort of paternalistic uh, relationship that our government has with other countries. This sort of, you know, uh, you can't tell me what to do. You're not my real dad type of relationship. While simultaneously <laughs> saying, we need you to stay here to, to deal with our defense. No, you can take care of your own defense. What the founders intended was the exact opposite of what we have now. And right. very often we find out they were not perfect people, but they had a decent idea of what our government should be used for and what our military should be used for. Here's what it should not be used for. Entangling alliances, uh, 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 wars and conflicts that have nothing to do with us, uh, get, creating wars and conflicts, creating terror organizations. We know, and this is not black helicopter stuff. It's, it is all, all released information. We know that the United States government created the Mujahideen, which eventually became Al-Qaeda, and used the blowback from the invasions of and, and occupation of holy sites in the Middle East as a recruitment tool for Al-Qaeda. We knew that the, the intelligence services knew that it was a recruitment tool, and they did it anyway, knowing it would recruit people to Al-Qaeda. They knew that when they were uh, they, they created the, uh, the the Sunni militia groups, uh, street militias in mm -hmm. Iraq, which later became ISIS. And then even after they became ISIS, continued to give them funding and training and weaponry and money. So what our government does, what our military and industrial uh, complex does is create boogeyman, bo boogeymen and then send our loved ones to go fight them. And this harms us and it, it immeasurably harms the people in those countries. You have children growing up who fear sunny days because those are the days when the drones and the bombers can more accurately target things and, 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 and do more bombings and attacks. They actually fear the sky. So we need to end all of this. Bring the troops home. Allow the healing to begin from that. Allow these countries to take care of their own defense, which they can more than afford to do so. Allow the relationship between us and other countries, instead of being this top-down paternalistic thing, to be a cooperation between friends. We need alliance with everyone. We need trade with whoever wants it. And we need aggression against only, we need uh, a war only with those who are directly threatening to aggress against us. And by the way, threatening to defend your country against U.S. troops is not a threat of aggression. Right. That is a threat of defense. Right. So we end the troops, we, bring, we end the wars, we bring the troops home, we allow the healing to begin. We dismantle the VA so that veterans can get the actual care they need by just putting the money directly in their pockets. And you've mentioned sort of the breakdown that we face domestically because of this spending. One of the major areas where we're suffering is education. And I know that Joe wants to just, um, take apart the Department of Education, put it back in the hands of parents and educators. My question is, if other countries have education systems that do have some sort of government overlay, how will a libertarian administration go forward and try to improve American education without having that Department of Education as a starting point or a place to branch operations out of? So when we look at the most successful educational systems that are in this country, that are in the, on the planet, mostly in Scandinavia and Eastern mm -hmm. Asia, but there are some other examples as well. When we look at the most uh, successful examples, here's what we see as the most common, common elements between them. Allowing individual communities to make decisions for education instead of having a top-down, uh, centrally planned thing, except for very small countries where it effectively is a community-based solution right. because it's a small country to begin with. Uh, allowing industry to be more involved in education because they are, can actually uh, utilize the educational system to uh, grow and, and foster people that are going to work in their industries. Uh, and then also, um, uh, yeah, so... Uh, Lost my train of thought. Uh, uh, oh, uh, lack of bureaucracy. 
So mm-hmm. there is bureaucracy in place. There is some standards in place, but a, an actual attempt on a regular basis to look for things that are inefficient and streamline them, even if it means cutting off entire things. Those are the three major elements. Oh, and also uh, not being involved, uh, uh, focusing on actual educational outcomes instead of testing, which is the yeah. opposite of what we're doing. We are testing, testing, yes. testing, testing. We got so caught up in the fact that as a direct result of our health, of our uh, educational system failing, that the test score we're going down. So now it's all game towards testing, yes. which is leaving people behind because life is not a test. Life is us learning how to do things and, and then doing them, yeah. um, doing those things. So here's what has happened with the Federal Department of Education. It was created in the 1970s in, in response to a record low literacy rate and a record high student to teacher ratio. In the nearly 50 years that the Department of Education has existed and the nearly $2 trillion it has spent during that time, the literacy rate has continued to drop and the student to teacher ratio has continued to go up as a direct result of bad policies from the federal department of education which is why again the founders never intended such a large uh, centralized point of control to be involved in something as personalized and Mm community-based as education the answer put the power and the money and the freedom back in the hands of those right. communities and school districts, let them come up with their own solutions and let them cooperate and work with other school districts to figure out what works best instead of imposing a top-down solution. Again, in the best of scenarios, it leads to well-intentioned people trying to figure out how to do things for 330 people, <laughs> 330 million people. And in the actual situation we have now, it leads to sociopaths who are telling everyone that they have to test really, really, really high or just label all the kids special needs, which is destroying entire educational yeah. systems uh, and also segregating an increasing number of poor uh, and marginalized people into bad school districts that they have no hope of getting out of. Get the government out of it. Give them their money and their power back. Let them make them ha- allow them to, to make their education look the way that they need it to for their community. Yeah, and you've mentioned bureaucracy and top-down solutions. One thing, actually, a couple of viewers have been curious about is under the Obama era, there was a lot of restrictions on coal mining, on coal burning. It was really mm-hmm. taking over in the Rust Belt and in areas like West Virginia that Democrats used to have a lot of say in and, and don't really anymore. My question is that is um, Joe 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 has said she wants to work to remove government barriers to clean energy and really change that system. If there's a libertarian administration, are we going to see a return of Obama-era restrictions in coal mining and coal burning? Because that did devastate the Rust Belt in certain areas and definitely change the political landscape a bit. You're going to see an elimination of government involvement in the market in general, okay. where it need not be. So in, that would include in you know renewables, that would include in nuclear, it would include in coal, it would include in oil and everything else. Mm-hmm. We are going to remove both the, the regulatory burdens and the tax breaks and subsidies. Everyone is on an even playing okay. field. We will allow the market to determine what the best forms of energy are, which will also allow for innovation across the market. Because if there ends up being a really clean way to harness coal for energy, great. But if there are regulations in place that don't allow it or make it prohibitively expensive, we are suffering for no good reason because some some crony got some politician to get some bureaucrat (laughs) to decide across for everyone what it should look like when they themselves often have little to no experience in that. Let's let's remember something here, Magdalene. The the experts – and, and I shouldn't say the experts in terms of the actual people who know how to do these things, but often we have politicians, 
who are sitting here right now, like I am, telling you that they know how every single thing works when often they've never actually had a real job or operated a real business. When people yeah. mention to me the fact that I've never been in higher office, I see that as a positive yes. because I've spent the last 38 years of my life in the actual real world doing yeah. things on, on the strength and merits of what I did as opposed to just convincing people it was a good idea and, and then forcing them to do it. So you get the regulations out of it, the energy market's going to look a lot cheaper, a lot more affordable, uh, a lot more innovative. And when people in those, uh, uh, when large polluters pollute or do damage, we can sue them. And if they yeah. go out of business, they shouldn't have destroyed the environment. And yeah. that will lead to the larger polluters, the ones who actually have the wherewithal to destroy the environment, to self-regulate without any need for government regulation because they don't want to lose everything. Yeah. And there's been a lot of questions right now of what Democrats, Republicans could do to fix solutions, to fix things together and come together. And based off of what we're dealing with with COVID, I was curious as a voter who tends to care more about foreign policy and isolationism, what libertarian policies or legislation would you propose to your administration to propose that Republicans and Democrats haven't to restart the economy, to get people back to work so we're no longer in this stagnation? Right. So let's be very clear about something. The reason that we have these lockdowns, the reason that we have these uh, this this massive economic depression, while simultaneously stock prices are at all time highs. Yeah. Keep that in mind. I'll get we'll get back to that in a second. The reason we're facing the reality of what we're facing now is because of a pandemic that is worse in this country than in almost any other country on Earth, precisely because the federal government did not allow medical professionals to test covid patients for the first two months that the virus was here. I'm going to say that again. For the first two months that COVID-19, the virus that we are told that if left to its own devices, doubles in its spread every single day and would lead to every single American having it if we don't stop it, do everything we can to stop it. For two months, for six to eight weeks that the virus was here, when people would go into their doctor's offices and say, Doc, I'm not feeling too hot. I or a loved one just got back from Wuhan, China or Hubei province, China. We're not feeling too good. And we're worried about this coronavirus thing we're hearing about. The doctor would have to say, we can test you for the flu and we can tell you to drink lots of right. fluids and stay away from people. And that's all we can do. And meanwhile, at that same time, we had American companies making approved COVID-19 test kits and could not sell them here. They had to sell them overseas because the CDC would not allow it until they themselves realized after six to eight weeks that they were never going to be able to make a test kit that worked. Because even though everyone else was already doing it, government sucks at everything they do. So here was what we had a massive increase in the amount of people that had COVID-19 and didn't even know it weren't being tested. And we are still uh, up again. We are just now starting to catch up on testing and that yeah. will take even longer to catch up on the, uh, on, on actually containing it. We simultaneously have an, a, a population that was told for 14 days, you have to stay home. That became like two months, three months. Yeah. And now they're like, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to go live my life. So now they don't even care about the virus anymore. More and more people are just like, I want to live my life. I'm, I'm losing everything. I'm losing my business. I can't go to AA and keep my addiction under control because that was labeled non-essential, even though, uh, you know, the alcohol store was labeled essential. Um, you had an increased number of businesses just go completely out of business. Yeah. People that have worked hard their whole lives for everything that they've tried to get. All of this happened as a result of a pandemic that could have been contained if medical professionals had been allowed to do their damn jobs. And now what we have is an increasing number of Americans who can't afford their lives. They can't afford being able to pay for themselves or their families to live. They were given 1200 bucks, what, three months ago, told to make that last forever, told that if they don't comply with right. the mandates, they'll be put in a cage where they are almost certain to catch COVID-19 
yeah. for their safety. And then they watch as trillions of dollars are given to crony billionaire companies to make sure their bottom line isn't affected even remotely, which is why stock prices are at an all time high during an economic depression that was imposed upon us by the governments. And we are being stuck to pay for that bill for the next 40 years with interest because it all just came out of the Federal Reserve. What yeah. libertarians would do is get rid of those ridiculous, burdensome policies that not only increase the cost of health care, but also make it impossible for medical professionals to do their jobs. Let them do their damn jobs. Then we don't need the mandates. And then we don't need the lockdowns. Then we don't need any of that stuff. We empower people with the information we have to make smart choices for themselves instead of trying to threaten to cage everyone who doesn't listen to what we said, even though we just demonstrated we have no idea what we're yeah. doing and made it worse to begin with get government out of it let people thrive yeah and it really does come down to a lot of different interests and the gridlock we're now seeing in washington just sort of in closing a lot of voters have questioned if they vote for a third party will that third party if they win be able to really function in dc will you be able to get legislation through positions confirmed have bipartisan solutions do you believe that the libertarian party can function in dc to the point where you're not just going to get stagnation until there's another midterm election can you actually get things done if elected Absolutely. So Congress has so abdicated their authority to the executive branch over the past several decades mm -hmm. with the creation of one regulatory agency after the next. Every, it seems like every couple of years we get another alphabet soup agency and they get to, you know, they get nearly unlimited regulatory authority. Uh, the silver lining to that uh, complete abdication of responsibility from Congress and the Supreme Court in allowing this to happen uh, is that when Joe Jorgensen and I get into the White House, uh, we can just start undoing all those bad regulatory right. burdens. We can start undoing all of those executive orders. You know, uh, uh, Trump and, and Obama, they, they bragged about their pen and their paper. Joe Jorgensen's going to have a big eraser and I'm going to have a big shredder behind her. And we're going to be just undoing. If there is a policy, if there is a regula regulation or a, uh, or a executive order, that does not help the public good, that is not there to actually help or protect the public and only serves to protect some crony or make something harder for someone, we get rid of it. We get rid of it at the executive level. And when the American people see the immediate and profound benefit of having more of their power and their money and their freedom back, we will be able to ride that, that political capital right. all the way to the steps of the Capitol building and draw a line in the swamp with our feet and say, okay, who wants to be on this side of the line with the people working to remove the boot from the neck of the people so that they can thrive and prosper? Or who wants to remain on that other side of the line with the people who want to keep that boot on their necks and allow continued needless suffering for no other reason than to preserve their own power and influence and that of the cronies who bought and paid for them to be in office? When we do that, many of them will want to work with us. Yeah. Many more will not. And we can, we can use that as an example and say, hey, folks, look, we were removing burdens to your life that had no reason to be there. Your life is better. These folks want to make it harder. These folks want to stop it at the legislative level where we could do even more good. Yeah. That's a great way to get libertarians elected. I definitely think you'll see that breakdown very quickly. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can people follow along with you or go to, you, to, go to see you on social media so they can learn more about your party? Absolutely. So our website is Joe20, that's J-O-2-0.com. Uh, Joe Jorgensen and I are also on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on YouTube. We're on Instagram. I'm on TikTok for the kids. Um, <laughs> and uh, if you look for Spike Cohen or Joe Jorgensen uh, on social media, you'll, you'll find us. I invite you to follow us. I have a YouTube channel where I have a bunch of videos. Uh, for those of you who like getting into YouTube wormholes for several hours, come check out my, 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 my YouTube because I have, uh, man, Oh, probably over 100 videos now and they're anywhere from two to 10 minutes long and they break down 
uh, our positions on different things. So if you were wondering what do libertarians think about yeah. X, there's more than likely already a video on there. And if there's not, then subscribe and hit the bell because <laughs> there soon will be and you can find out just as soon as anyone else can. Um, but yeah, our website is Joe 20 uh, and we would love to have you uh, join up. We have a volunteer form and if you're able to join our team, if you're able to make a contribution, anything you were able to do to help uh, us in our growing of a, a human ar army for human liberty, fighting for an America and a world set free in our time, we greatly appreciate it. And thank you for your time. Perfect. And we'll link all that in the description below. Thank you all for listening to the Stop Yelling, Start Thinking podcast. And go ahead and leave us a review. Thank you, Spike. Thank you. We hope to keep you more free, more informed. Because I believe, as I hope you do, that informed people tends to be a free people.